This week's episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure that every surface is clean and sanitary, bust out the cleaner and sanitizers with professional power and home brewer safety. Making better beer with better chemistry? Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Want to make the jump to all-grain brewing but don't want to spend thousands of dollars? Brewcraft USA has the answer for you. The five-gallon grainfather system lets you mash, sparge, boil, and chill with its all-in-one design. Available exclusively where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs. With nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship any amount anywhere in the USA. And with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. Hey, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, coming in May 2016. Now, between the two of us, we have almost 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer with strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. All right, and on today's episode, episode number two, the big two, the terrible twos. We're going to, call, uh, going to talk about our Igor program and the recent ruling that means everything is now craft beer. Wow, everything? Everything. I mean, is that like my car is craft? No, never mind. And then we'll cover the rise of the brewing robots like Pico Brew's Zymatic and Pico Systems, the Brewy, the Mini Brew, and some of the other stuff that's coming up out there. And we'll finally hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew with uh, questions from you guys out there, and uh, then close out our show with our quick tip of the week. Before we get into all the wacky, crazy stuff, though, we need to get serious here and talk about something. Uh, to do a podcast like this, you got to have money. There's just no way around it. And to get money, you've got to have sponsors. Uh, some of the sponsors on this show are going to be people whose products we discuss, but we want to let you know that every single sponsor on this show has been vetted by us and is has a product that we use and or recommend. We're not just flogging something for the bucks. We won't steer you guys into something that uh, won't actually be good for your brewing. You may not agree with our uh, our ideas, but believe me, there are honest thoughts. Now, at the same time, if Anheuser-Busch comes to us with a wad of cash and says, hey, we're opening up a homebrew store or a homebrewing system, uh, integrity. Uh, yeah, we'll yeah, and integrity. Yeah, well, it depends on how much integrity they're going to give us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and speaking speaking of sponsorship, uh, Drew wants to tell you a little bit about how you guys can be sponsors, also. Right. So, uh, if you haven't heard of Patreon before, Patreon is a really convenient service uh, available on the web that allows you to support creators of content that you like. So right now, Denny and I are actually setting up a Patreon account, which means that you can kick us as little as a dollar an episode, a dollar a month. Uh, 
you know, whatever amount of money that is that you feel like uh, you feel our content's Yeah, worth. or as much as so, 100000 uh, an episode. That would be okay, too. Hey, if, if somebody wants to give us that, I'll, I will love you to death. And I will... I'll retire again. I'll support whatever you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, look at our website. Uh, we'll have a link to the Patreon campaign up there. And please uh, consider giving us uh, some support because your money is actually going to go and do a couple things. One, it's going to allow us to improve this podcast. It's going to allow us to do more experiments with this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what we're doing with our experiments in a moment. Uh, and it's also going to allow us to uh, raise some money for charity. Uh, we'll, g- we'll give you more details on charitable causes uh, before telling, and we'll actually give you guys some feedback. Tell us uh, what you think it is that we should support. And we'll eventually have some stuff that you guys can uh, use to show your support, uh, like T-shirts, stuff like that. But uh, f- for the moment, uh, just be aware that we're starting up this Patreon account, and we will uh, tell you a lot more about it at our website, experimentalbrew.com. We'll be back in just a minute from the Experimental Brewing Pub with this week's episode of The Beer Life. Hey there, welcome back. Drew and I are sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub with a couple pints in front of us. Drew, what are you drinking today? Uh, today I'm drinking Sierra Nevada Torpedo. Torpedo. Hmm. Gotta admit, that one just does not do it for me. I'm having a Duval myself. That's the kind of mood that I'm in today. So, anyway, we're sitting here at the pub. It's at the, the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA. And uh, we're going to talk to you about uh, some of the things going on in the beer world. All right, well, first, we're going to talk about our Igor program. So, what's Igor's? Uh, you may notice we have a slight bad scientist theme uh, to our podcast. Uh, we have our wonderful logo uh, designed for us by a friend of the podcast, Colin Davis. Uh, it's all mad science, beer wackiness, and everything else. But what we want to do is we want to raise an army, uh, an army of researchers, and they're going to be called Igor's, the independent group of researchers. God, that's so clever, man. I just can't believe it. I know. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes I impress myself. <laughs> uh, so now, what, what are the Igors? Uh, we talk all the time about how these experiments that we're going to be doing for the show and that we've done in the book and that we talk about online, they're all what we consider to be citizen science. Uh, we are not, any of us, capable of pulling off real according to Hoyle science. We don't have that level of control in our home garages. Some of you maybe do. Most of us don't. So one of the great hallmarks of science, though, is that any sort of scientific conclusion that you come to should survive repeatable testing. And the more repetition you have, the better confidence that you can have in the result. So what are the Igors going to do? They're going to help us out with the experiments. And together, we're actually going to design experiments on this show. We're going to have Igors run them, and you can run them too, even if you're not an Igor. And have everybody report back the results. And as we get everybody comfortable with this, uh, some of the Igors are actually going to be content generators for us. They're going to they're going to go out and design experiments and run them and come and talk about them on the podcast. So if you want to join the Igor program, you can either look at our website or you can email us at igor at experimentalbrew.com in order to get started with the program. That's how you can become an Igor and join in helping us uh, do some of the experiments. Uh, so what else is going on, Drew? We alluded to it in the open. But I think uh, the amazing thing is that now everything is craft beer. Uh, if you haven't been if you haven't been paying attention to the news, obviously we talked last time about 
uh, the rise of the the mega merger, uh, including SAB Miller and Bud Light, or sorry, Anheuser-Busch. Uh, what ended up happening uh, was there was a, a U.S. District Federal Court lawsuit class action that was attempting to essentially take Miller Coors to task for labeling Blue Moon as a craft beer. Uh, now, keep in mind, part of the problem with that is Coors produces somewhere over 70 million barrels of Blue Moon a year. To put that into perspective, even our biggest craft breweries or things that we consider to be craft brewers in the Brewers Association, like Yangling or Sam Adams, uh, they're producing somewhere closer to 5 million. So Blue Moon is out there at a much, much higher rate, you know, 14 times more than what the biggest craft beer producers are doing. So what ended up happening, craft, uh, the craft beer term uh, ended up generating a, a, a class action lawsuit for being uh, misleading, and uh, it got tossed. So now Blue Moon, or anything else that wants to call itself uh, craft beer, can call itself craft beer because uh, the term is legally meaningless. But isn't that somewhat on the people who came up with the term craft beer, and yes, I'm looking at you, Brewers Association. Um, if, if that terminology didn't exist, then obviously this whole situation wouldn't exist. Uh, one of the things that the judge found was that the term hadn't been defined well enough. Uh, there's, there's really no way to say exactly what is a craft beer and what isn't. So maybe the best thing to do is just get rid of that label completely and call yourself a brewer and say that you make beer. What about that? I don't know. I think everybody should be artisanal brewers with mustache-filtered beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I do with mine, man. Well, uh, but no, I mean, uh, I mean, seriously, why do we really need the label craft beer anymore? Does it serve any purpose, especially when it's uh, so poorly defined? Well, it's interesting, right? Because it's it's still that a little bit what we talked about in the first episode: uh, the damn, the man, the attitude. Yeah, yeah. Craft beer exists as a term to separate ourselves out from the nefarious big boys who are playing bad games. Yeah, but so but why why get into that whole thing? You know, why not why not just make the beer and let it speak for itself as opposed to trying to say snootily there's a word for you snootily that uh, that we're better because we're craft brewers why not just say we make damn good beer and we want you to try it and see for yourself right well i i think it goes it still goes back to what's the purpose of the term and yeah. really as it exists right now the purpose of the term is to determine who who can join the Brewers Association, right? Because that's who the Brewers Association is supposed to be for, is the smaller brewers. Wait, you, now, you're, telling me that Anheuser, is, is that you're telling me that Anheuser-Busch is not a member of the Craft Brewers Association? <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, well, because look at the rules. As they exist right now from the Brewers Association, uh, a craft brewer, for their membership terms, uh, has to produce less than 6 million barrels of beer annually. Uh, which, by the way, is a number that has changed uh, from time to time as the big boys in our industry, our side of the industry, have gotten bigger. Right. Uh, it's less than 25% owned or controlled by a non-craft brewer. 
So this is the reason why uh, Woodmere, for instance, Woodmere got kicked out of the Brewers Association because they entered into that deal to do CBA with Anheuser-Busch. And so now, uh, was it Woodmere, Kona, uh, <clears throat> Pyramid? All those guys are all considered non-craft brewers because of their deals with big boys. Uh, Elysian, same thing. Uh, Golden Road now uh, as well. Any of those other breweries that we talked about because now they're owned by more than 25% by a non-craft brewer. And then uh, the last one and kind of the, the weirdest one and the most malleable is that they make beer using only traditional or innovative brewing ingredients. So... That's another term that's also changed over time because for the longest time it also excluded anybody doing an adjunct blogger. But then, uh, Yangling, uh, Yangling applied for membership into the Brewers Association and they adjusted the definition on that basis in order to allow Yangling in. So it's a weird term, it's a weird term as it exists from the Brewers Association point of view because it's really all just about who gets to be part of that particular organization, you know, which is again designed to support the concern of smaller brewers. Uh, what does it mean for a consumer? Not much except for, again, back to what we, what we had talked about last week, which is this is a term that allows sort of a shortcutted point of view on who's it's, it's doing a, things. It's a ridiculous right. and useless term, Drew. It means nothing. I mean, I mean, it's not defined well enough to give people any sort of meaning whatsoever. It's a feel-good Phrase for the for for a few breweries and the people who drink their beer. Now, get, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not defending you know the big mega brewers or anything like that. What I'm saying is that the whole craft beer concept is is misguided and maybe should just go away and let again let the beer speak for itself. If we're looking at it independent of anything other than sort of the business terms of it and what it means to be a non-craft brewer, uh, like with all these recent mergers, I'm totally fine with that. But I think the one point where the craft brewer term does still have merit is in that sort of guiding of are you one of the good guys or are you one of the bad guys in terms of your business practices and what Why you're doing to the market. Why not let people decide that for themselves? Uh, why, why, why say, oh, look, I'm wearing a white hat. I'm one of the good guys. You know, why not let people take a look at your company and, and, and make that decision? I mean, you know, again, when so many people well, consider something like Blue Moon to be a craft beer, right? And the judges ruling aside, the, the drinkers of it decided, uh, decided it's a craft beer. The company marks it mm-hmm. as a craft beer. Doesn't that make that term pretty much useless? And isn't that what the judge really said? It, it does make it meaningless when it's used that way. But I think that was part of the point of the, the lawsuit was, hey, it, this isn't right. This isn't how you should use this term. Uh, and again, I mean, I know I'm I'm me. I'm anti-corporate. Well, and so, so am I. No cores or uh, I, need to, I need to be clear about that. Well, uh, I guess what I what I am in favor of is. You know, not not using loosely or undefined terms to try and market your brewery, but to say, hey, look, we're a bunch of good guys. We make good beer. Try it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we can go round and round because we're just going in circles now. All right. Well, but here, here's my question. If part of the point of craft beer as a term is to help you identify 
you know, sort of good corporate practitioners, uh-huh. practitioners. Uh, what would you propose as an alternative? How, how, how do you communicate that message out to the out to I the would public? say that that's up to each individual brewery to do, and not with a, a BS term like, like craft beer. I would say, you know, uh, the breweries need to communicate their message because when they use that term craft beer, they need to realize that it's basically meaningless and it's not telling anybody anything. Sounds so easy when I sit here and say it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, oh, from from my little room here in in my little microphone, everything's yeah, nice right. and easy. Oh, except for uh, that guy over there who just dropped his beer, man. Uh, he's gonna be pissed. Time for another pint. All right. Well, again, I, I uh, to me, it's like I recognize that the craft beer definition is strange, but man, we got to figure something out because, uh, again, it's like what we talked about last week. I. I don't like it. I don't like my money going to certain companies. And man, it'd be nice if there was an easy way to identify that. Maybe what the Brewers Association should do is just uh, make a cask mark type seal of approval. I would say it, a lot of it comes down to caveat emptor. You know, let the buyer beware. Do your research. Figure out who you want to buy your beer from, and uh, don't don't let uh, the the terminology they use to describe themselves. Uh, sway you like that so well but that 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 does require that the consumer is that's true and that's what i say the breweries need to be doing is that they need to be getting the information out there to the consumers so okay drew and i are going to finish up our beers here maybe order another one and uh we'll be back in just a minute to talk about uh, the rise of the automated brewing systems Now that we're out of the pub and we've had our beers, I think it's time that we talk about the rise of the robots. So, Denny, I know that I, I know that yeah, you've been playing around with uh, some robotic brewing mechanisms. So, why don't you lead us off and uh, tell us what this is all about? Yeah, um, I've been playing around with the Pico Brew Zymatic, as has Drew. I think I've had mine a little bit longer. Uh, and just to kind of let you guys in on my evolution about this thing, when I first heard about the Zymatic. I had the same feeling as probably a lot of you out there have. My first words on a Facebook post to the company were, do not want. Uh, I just thought, oh, no, 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 man. This thing is an abomination. Uh, I don't see how it has anything to do with home brewing. Then I started looking a little bit closer, and I found out that Annie Johnson is involved with the company as their uh, master brewer. Now, if you don't know Annie... She's a, a pretty amazing woman. Uh, for one thing, she won the Pilsner Urquell Homebrewer of the Year contest. Uh, she was also the AHA Homebrewer of the Year back in, do you remember the year? I used to know that. 2013, I think. Yeah, 2013, something like that. Annie is an amazing woman and an amazing brewer. And just the very fact that she was involved with uh, Pico Brood made me decide that I needed to take a little bit closer look at it and not just write it off. Um, well, and very importantly, as you indicated with the win with Urkel, she is Pilsner obsessed. Yeah, so exactly. That means she, she doesn't have a lot of room for hiding any sort of flaws in her brewing process. So if the Pico Brew has real issues, 
you would suspect that they'd really show themselves up in a Pillsbury. So, you know, that's another reason to take a look at Annie's endorsement of the thing and go, eh, okay, maybe there's something here. Right. Okay, so now what exactly is the Pico Brew? For those of you who don't know, it's a uh, – uh, I call it a a computer-controlled robotic brewing machine, which probably makes it sound more daunting than it really is. Uh, A large stainless steel box uh, about the size of a very large microwave. Uh, Amazing build quality. I tell people, uh, to me, it looks like it's built like a Ferrari, not that I've ever had a Ferrari to compare. On the front of the machine, there's a large opening where you insert a plexiglass or polycarbonate or or something of box that holds up to nine pounds of grain and four little bins that uh, hold uh, four different hop additions up to an ounce each um, and you can you can certainly squeeze more and I think it's an ounce of whole hops you probably get more pellets in there than that um, on the front of the unit, right above that box, there's a display uh, that not only uh, shows you the status of the brewing process, but also uh, allows you to pick the recipe you want to brew. When you first turn on the Zymatic, it connects to your Wi-Fi system, hits up the Pico Brew website, and downloads the recipes that you have made using their recipe crafter software on the on the website. Downloads them into your machine. Uh, you hook a keg of water up to it. Uh, this thing makes a two-and-a-half-gallon batch. You generally start with somewhere in the neighborhood of about three-and-a-half gallons of water. So you hook the keg of water up to it, turn the dial to select the recipe you want, push the button to start it up, and uh, in in the simplest scenario, you come back about four, four and a half hours later, and you have a keg of wort ready to be chilled down and pitched. Uh, you can even ferment in the keg if you want to. A lot of people do. Um, it's uh, the the next question you always get about the thing is, yeah, but what's the beer like? The beer is like any beer you make using a good brewing system. It's, it's, it's great beer that it, it, it's kind of limited by only by your skill and not by the machine itself. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's not really an issue. Uh, some people have an issue with the two and a half gallon batch size, not a problem for me, uh, not a problem for a lot of other people who use it both personally. And there are a lot of breweries that are using it as a pilot system, to prototype their beers. And the bottom line is that it, it's fast and easy enough. If you wanted to brew twice in a day to make five gallons, you can do that. Uh, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I've I've done three batches wow. in a day with this You're thing. an overachiever, aren't you? <laughs> I, I <had laughs> yeah, brew right. a lot of beer. The other thing you can do, of course, uh, with the with the uh, high-efficiency mash schedule that the thing has, um, you can with your nine pounds of grain, you can make up to two and a half gallons of beer in the 1085, 1090 range. So you could also uh, add some water to that, uh, dilute it down to a more reasonable gravity, depending on who you are. You know, I guess Fred Bonjour wouldn't say that 1090 was an unreasonable gravity. Uh, but uh, so you can you can extend your brew length like that. Um, it's a it's a wonderful unit. Uh, it's obviously not for everybody. The retail price on it is two thousand dollars. Although that you know, if you go to your local homebrew shop, they may be able to cut you a deal on it. Uh, and some people say that you know, it's not really brewing. 
to which I just have to say, says who? Uh, who makes who makes those rules and who's keeping score as to what brewing is? Don't we each get to decide that for ourselves? I find that the repeatability of the Zymatic is one of its biggest pluses. Uh, you, if you need to make a batch of beer and you want to say experiment with ingredients and only change one ingredient, you can be certain that everything else about your brew is going to remain consistent. It's great for experimentation. It's great for when you're busy. Uh, I brewed uh, a Pilsner with it not too long ago, a German Pils. And while the Zymatic was, was brewing away, I managed to clean the house, do the laundry, and write a chapter in uh, in Homebrew All-Stars. So uh, that's a that's a really big plus right there. The other thing that I love about it is the cleanup. I mean, you know, let's face it, we all think that probably cleaning up after brewing has got to be the worst part of the brew day. Well, with the Zymatic, you pull out the uh, the bin, officially called a step filter, you dump out the grains and hops, and you chuck it all in your dishwasher and let the dishwasher take care of it for you. I love that part. Yeah, and uh, here, here's my, my take on it, uh, now that Tanae's had his ramble. Um, I, I, I will fully admit that the biggest thing about it to me is the fact that I can set it up and I can walk away from it. Um, when, when we were in the middle of writing the book, uh, we got to the point where it was coming up pretty quickly that not only was our book due, but so was the American Homebrewers Conference in San Diego. And since San Diego is in my backyard, people sort of expect me to bring beer. So we had a talk and we had a bunch of beer that we had to pour for a bunch of different events. So while trying to write a book and work a 40 to 60 hour a week job. So while trying to do all that, if I was just struck or stuck with using my traditional mash system and my traditional boil kettle and everything else that I have, I'd be pretty out of luck in terms of getting it done in the time frame that we had. So instead, I literally did brew three batches in a day, and each of those was two and a half gallons. And during the week that I had the system in play, I managed to do six different batches of beer. And some of those batches, in order to like really make an impact on the amount of beer that I had to pour, I brewed as a concentrated batch. And we'll talk more about that uh, on another show. But basically the idea was I brewed two and a half gallons at a nice strong gravity and then diluted them down with boiled and filtered water and was able to make a really nice session mile, uh, sessionable ale, like a mild, uh, made a uh, pale ale. And obviously I think the favorite one that I did, and this goes to Denny's point about repeatability, was for our talk that we gave in San Diego on introduction to experimentation, we wanted to really drive home points about tasting. We talked about this last week with the the strong and uh, the strong and regular versions of beer and tricking people by giving them the exact same beer. So what we did for the talk was I brewed three batches, two of them as strong that were diluted down to uh, five gallons to a regular gravity, and then the other one that was brewed at regular gravity but as a two and a half gallon batch. Now we gave the audience the two beers that were the diluted beers that had been mixed together to be absolutely the same. Now, in the regular world with my 72-quart uh, cooler and my 26-gallon boil kettle, uh, I wouldn't be 
assured of my own rep- uh, repetition skills because that's never been my strong suit or the thing I really gave a damn about. But with the Pico Brew, I could be so that I knew that those two batches I was doing as diluted batches were going to be relatively close to each other. And the blending further ensured that they were going to be the same. But for the tasting panel that was up front, there's no way I would be able to do the strong beer and make it taste like the regular beer without uh, without having used something like the Pico. And keep in mind, for everybody out there who is like going, oh, well, you know, this thing's weird. It doesn't get up to a full boil because uh, – you know, it's taking things out of the keg, across a glycol exchanger, and then back into the keg. And it, it, never it, gets, it does get to 207. So it's inside of a closed vessel. Yeah, it gets to 207, uh, or as we like to think, that Denver boil. But it never gets to that full boil level, and it's inside of a closed vessel like a keg. You're going to have DMS issues all over the place. Well, remember, Annie's a pills freak. Denny just talked about making a pills. The... Pale beers that I did for the AHA conference for our talk, those were all uh, pale malt with a fair amount of SMM in them, no detectable DMS. And most importantly also for me, and I'm actually doing this right now, uh, I, I've been using the Pico to also drive he means, my He means enzymatic because otherwise it's going to get confusing. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. The Pico brew zymatic. Uh, yeah, it got very confusing now that they've introduced the Pico system, uh, the really tiny countertop version. But I've, I've been using it to run batches of two and a half gallons of wort of mostly Pilsner malt, German Pilsner malt, which should just be a DMS nightmare, and letting those boil off in the in the system and using those to pitch different Saison strains into. And with none of those beers have I detected any DMS even after abusing some of the kegs. And for those of you who are out there freaking out because Drew said it doesn't get to a full boil, let me tell you, there is nothing magical about 212 degrees. The only thing that, the only reason that 212 degrees is a good thing in your kettle is because then it provides agitation, which moves things around. Because the zymatic is continually recirculating, it does the same thing. And 207 is good. So, but yep. unless this starts sounding like an infomercial, let's, uh, let's just take a quick look at a few of the other things that are out there that are, that are similar to this. Uh, Pico Brew has just come out with a new system called the Pico. That's a one gallon system, uh, gonna sell for, I believe, under a thousand dollars. They have licensed recipes from a lot of home brewers and many, many breweries across the United States. And you can buy prepackaged recipe kits to go into it. Uh, think of it as a Keurig for beer. And no, that is not damning with faint praise. That is actually a really good thing. Let's face it. A lot of people who like good beer and want to make good beer don't necessarily want to do all the stuff that uh, a full-on home brewer does. So the Pico is great for that. There's a couple other systems out there, too. There's the Brewy, which is uh, in the Kickstarter phase right now, as is the Pico. Uh, the Brewy is a, a $2,000 completely automated system, uh, like the Zymatic. Uh, the difference is that it makes five, maybe five and a half gallons at a time. Uh, it uh, is a little bit larger, weighs about the same amount, uh, but really, really works very similarly. Similarly, boy, that's a tough word to say. Uh, the other system comes from a Dutch company, and it's called the Mini Brew, 
and it's uh, it's a whole lot the same uh automated system uh you put in your ingredients and let it do the work for you it uh, it's a smaller system looks like to be maybe about two two and a half gallons of uh, I, I think it's five liters yeah okay okay is that what it is so it's even less than that uh very picturesque the mm-hmm. uh, the little brewing kettle looks like a cute little copper barrel sitting there uh it, it's real nice uh or, or real nice looking you know nobody really knows because it's still in prototype and kickstarter stage right now so Keep in mind that these systems are aimed at people that don't have the space that a lot of us have to brew in. They don't have the time that a lot of us do uh, to brew. These these systems are great for busy people living in apartments who uh, come home from work and just kind of like want to relax and uh, throw together something that they made themselves. Yeah, well – and and I'll say when when this, when this stuff first appeared on the market, I kind of thought it was a, a a dilettante's toy, you know, for somebody who had more money than brewing sense, you know, that it's not real brewing. But a, after having played around with it for a while, I mean, the price point is still at a place where I'd be less than happy with it. Uh, but obviously, that's because I'm a home brewer. Uh, but it really does offer a lot of freedom for being able to, to do things. The, the bottom line is that. If you are open-minded enough to maybe change the way you think about brewing and add another definition to that, then there are some uh, really, really interesting things coming down the pike, and it would behoove you to take a look at them. So, Okay, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we'll be trying to answer some questions from some of our listeners. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in. Hey, yeah, we're back, and we have some questions that people have sent to us, and we're going to see if we're smart enough to give them answers. Uh, Drew, why don't you take the first one? Question number one comes from Kev Martin of Anchorage, Alaska. He says, I hope you don't mind me emailing. No, we'd never mind you emailing. No, that's what we're here for. Uh, I brewed a Kolsch, and at bottling, it tasted pretty good. After two weeks carving, it tastes and smells a bit funky, more like a Belgian farmhouse ale. The bottles also have a very thin bit of film or foam at about three-eighths of an inch across the surface. So I've read that new beer can taste green, but I don't know what that tastes like. I think it's picked up an infection during bottling, but it could, could it just be green? All right, well, uh, we wanted to get some more details about this from Kev, and Kev responded in time for us to be able to get them on the air. Uh, and it turns out, like, looking at it, uh, these were bottles uh, that he said it was brand new in terms of uh, tasting. He'd only tasted one bottle at the point. Carbonation seemed fine, uh, and he wasn't really sure. But I think the very first thing that we can say is it's definitely not green. Uh, green is Well, I mean... A- it- it, it it might be green if there's like a fuzzy layer floating on the top or something like that. I would call that moldy. <laughs> uh, but green in the beer sense, uh, I wouldn't exactly agree. I mean, when we say green, that usually refers to kind of an unaged characteristic where flavors haven't melted together. Right. Uh, you have stuff that's still being picked up and cleaned by the yeast. But in this particular case, given that he's got it smelling like a Belgian farmhouse, that says to me, 
uh, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something a Kolsch should never smell like. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think I might prefer a Kolsch if it smelled like a Belgian farmhouse hill. <laughs> oh, oh, take that, Kolsch lovers. Yeah, well, and also we did have a, a another little bit of exchange with Kev, and uh, eventually we're going to do all this live on air. But uh turns out he said, oh, well, I just realized these bottles were recycled from a Belgian beer that I'd done before. So what we're going to guess, or at least what I'm going to guess is, I don't think the bottles were cleaned sufficiently of yeast before being sanitized and reused. Because you have to remember, uh, if you're not cleaning sufficiently, you could throw all the sanitation in the world that you want, it, that you want at the bottles. It's not going to matter. Yep, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it might be leftover yeast. It might just be some wild funkiness from the air that floated in there because they weren't cleaned well enough. But uh, I, I agree. I think that that's probably the problem. If the beer itself tastes fine, you know, it just happens to taste like a Belgian farmhouse, congratulations, you made a Belgian farmhouse, not a Kolsch. Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, but don't try and pass off infected beer as a Belgian beer. Just drink it yourself and say, okay, this is okay. Uh, assuming you can drink it. Our next question today comes from Matthew Trumbo, and Matthew wants to know, what are your thoughts about bottling into flip-top bottles? As long as the seal is still pretty tight, should it be okay? Matthew, you gave me a softball here, buddy. Uh, The one-word answer is, sure. As long as that seal is fine, they're going to be as good as any other bottles. Uh, So just make sure that that little rubber ring around the top isn't dried out or cracked. And if it is, you can go to your homebrew shop and pick up a new package of them really, really cheap. I think I bought 35 of them in a pack about 15 years ago and still have most of them left. If you're the totally OCD type, you can, of course, replace them every time you use the bottles, but I just don't feel like that's necessary. Yeah, and I think, Drew. Well, I I do know people who replace them every time. Uh, I'll say, I don't know, from my point of view, obviously I'm a kegger. Uh, I don't bottle anything because uh, that kind of sucks. But flip-top bottles are just great. They're fine. They may be a little finicky sometimes in storage, but... Really, if if nothing else, those bottles are so much sturdier than the standard long necks. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, I think they're great for for the use of homebrewers. So totally, you're you're fine. Keep moving. Yep, yep. Make sure those gaskets are good and use those bottles. Drew, next question. All right, our third question. Question three comes from Lynn Noella of Los Angeles, California. Uh, she's asking a yeast nutrient. How important is it, and what brand should I use for beer, cider, and mead? All right, so here's my take on things about yeast nutrient. Most of the yeast nutrients out there on the market are going to be equally good. Uh, really, you're looking at some stuff with diammonium phosphate, maybe some zinc, uh, a little bit of this, that, and the other in a proprietary blend. Uh, so far, my experiences with the ones I've tried have all been equally good. Uh, for beer, I don't tend to mess around with the yeast nutrient except for in terms of starters. Uh, all my starters get a little pinch of yeast nutrient because, hey, a little bit of extra oomph at that period of time is a good thing for the yeast. Uh, and also if I'm doing something that's really, really big. And the reason for that is that beer wort has all the nutrients that uh, Saccharomyces need. They've grown up together, so that kind of makes some sense. Now, when you start to get into must-based beverages, things like cider, mead, or uh, grape wine, or any fruit wine, then I think yeast nutrient is an absolute must. Part of the reason why people have always talked about, oh, you know, meads and ciders, they take you like a year before they're ready to drink, is because those musts that they're using or that they've created are incredibly nutrient deficient for the needs of Saccharomyces. And therefore, it takes longer for Saccharomyces 
to do its job. It gets stressed out. It produces more off flavors, and therefore it also takes longer to clean up. So a, a little bit of yeast nutrient goes a long way in terms of improving your must-based products. Uh, I saw a really great talk a few years ago in uh, St. Paul uh, or Minneapolis or whichever one of the Twin Cities it was in, uh, where a bunch of mead makers up there in the upper Midwest where they make some really fantastic meads uh, gave a talk. And at the end of the talk where they had served out, I don't know, like eight, nine meads, they revealed that none of the meads was any older than I think about three months. And uh, Yeah, I, re- I remember that, man. It was astounding. Yeah, and, and they got away with it. They were, I should say they managed to produce all those meads in that short period of time because they did everything with uh, staggered yeast nutrients uh, additions, which basically means take your yeast nutrient, split it up into a couple of equal, equal doses, like say eight, and for the first four days, every 12 hours, add a small dose of nutrient into your mix. And boom, it works so wonderfully. In, in our next book, uh, Homebrew All-Stars, uh, we have a section there where, where Kurt Stock, an award-winning mead maker, t- talks about his staggered nutrient addition method. Uh, he actually does it in three editions, not not eight. And uh, having tasted Kurt's meads, I can tell you that the three-edition method works. Well, it just is astounding that after mead has gotten the reputation of something that needs to age for months or years, that you can make some astoundingly good meads uh, in, in just a couple months. Yeah. Uh, and, my and, general feeling. Well, I was going to say, and Kurt was one of the ones who presented at that mead talk. So. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, my my general feeling about nutrients is pretty much the same as Drew's. Although I do try and uh, throw them into every batch of beer, I I almost always remember to do it. Uh, on the theory that hey, I've got the stuff around anyway from uh, putting in starters, and it's cheap insurance. So why the heck not? You know, it's it's easy, it's inexpensive, and it ain't going to hurt. Well. Almost. The one thing I will say and caution people about is don't go overboard. Uh, if you do go overboard, you can tend to pick up off flavors from the yeast nutrients. So really follow the manufacturer's instructions on that one. That's right. That's why you read the label and do what it says. And more is not always better. All righty. Our final question is from Chris Belli, or maybe Belly, who knows, from Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Chris says, my hop aroma on a dry hopped kegged ale is great for a few pints and then seems to disappear. A few days later, the same thing happens. Seems like the first few pints are great and then I lose the aroma. I wonder if this is just my senses that becoming accustomed to the aroma after a beer or two. Any insight would be helpful. Thanks. Well, we'll see what we can do with insight here. Now, he says kegged. Uh, I don't know if that means we're supposed to assume it's different in bottled beer or not. Uh, we'll kind of uh, assume that it's all the same. Uh, in which case, I would say, yeah, it's got to well, be your I, senses. Uh, I disagree. You disagree? I mean, but I mean, if he if he pulls a beer, a couple beers, and they're fine, then mm-hmm. he gets no aroma. Then a couple days later, he pulls a couple beers, and they're fine, then he gets mm-hmm. no aroma. I, it doesn't seem to me like it would be the aroma vanishing from the beer and ah, the keg, would no, it? But here's here's what I would suspect. Depending upon his dry hopping method, if he does the classical thing, uh, take a bunch of hops, throw them into a hop bag, weight it down, and throw it in the keg, let the bag sink to the bottom of the keg, those first couple mm-hmm. pints are going to be drawn completely through the hops, and they'll have been sitting on the hops for a couple days. Right. So, and and that I would say that, that in that case, that would be – True, 
But I was going on the assumption, and again, he doesn't say what he does. I was going on the assumption that he dry hops before the beer is kegged and doesn't put the dry hops in the keg. Well, there you go. We have competing, so, we have competing assumptions. So I, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, I, uh, I guess that we really need a little bit more info before we can uh, answer this question with any kind of, of degree of, of validity, uh, you know, uh, so Chris, get back in touch with this man and let us know, are you dry hopping before the beer is kegged or are you dry hopping in the keg? Because it'll be different answers depending on which way you're doing it. So, okay, here's Drew with our quick tip of the week. All right. So this one's inspired by something that just recently happened to me. I finally lost my starting chest freezer, the one that I've had since uh, 1999, 2000. It died on me. And so I had to replace it. So here are a couple of quick tips about setting up a chest freezer for use uh, in your home, either as a kegerator or as a uh, fermentation closet. Uh, the first one is I'm going to tell you right now, just uh, check your measurements. Uh, I accidentally didn't check my measurements. By accidentally meant uh, I messed up. And I ordered a chest freezer that I assumed was the same size as my old one. Turns out it was much, much, much bigger. I can now hold uh, about eight Jimmy Hoffas in my new chest freezer. So I had to rearrange my entire brewery in order to fit this monstrosity in. But it's glorious and wonderful. But uh, so that's the, the, the super quick tip. But really, the other one is before you turn your chest freezer on, aside from giving it some time to settle in its new location, just in case uh, your delivery guys uh, turned it on its side and the, the compressor oil uh, moved away, uh, do a couple things. Make sure you have your thermostats ready. Make sure you have like a little muffin fan to circulate any of the air around in there. That's a nice to have. But really the important part, chest freezers are not designed to do what we homebrewers do with them, which is run them above freezing. So they don't do very well, actually, with moisture inside them. And if you're running them as a refrigerator, which we effectively are, you will have a lot of moisture inside your thing. So have some damper, have an Evadry, have something in there to help suck up some of that moisture. But also, before you turn it on, before you start generating moisture, get yourself some clear silicone caulk. You know, the stuff that you'd use in the bathroom or the kitchen. And go around and caulk all of the seams inside that chest freezer. Trust me. Do this. Big, fat beads of caulk everywhere. And make sure that it's completely covered on those seams. And that way, you'll keep water from getting inside the chest freezer walls and causing premature rusting out. I didn't do that on my last one. It still managed to last a long period of time, but I dealt with rust issues pretty much all of its life. So do yourself a favor. Go spend five bucks at the hardware store, buy some silicone caulk, and go around and lay it in thick on all those seams. Because again, what we do to chest freezers as homebrewers is not natural. Yeah, and this is this tip is particularly interesting to me because I just picked up a really nice freezer about a year ago, a brand new one, energy efficient, all the good stuff, yada yada. Uh, and in about the last two months, I've started noticing rust along the bottom of it, along the seams. Mm -hmm. And I believe me, I am going to like be out there uh, reworking it based on these tips. But uh, tell me about the muffin fan. What do you do with the muffin fan? Just put it in there and just let it circulate around. Yeah, uh, it just you goes into the same. Try and exhaust it? it uh, the muffin fan just gets plugged into the thermostat just like the chest freezer it do, uh, itself does. And whenever the chest freezer fires up, the muffin fan will also turn on and it circulates the air in there. So it's just another way of, okay. of making sure that you're moving air. So it just it just circulates the air inside the freezer. It doesn't actually vent it to the outside or nah, anything. No, nah, because then you're throwing okay, away cold. Cool. 
Great. Okay, man, that is a great tip, and I guarantee you that's one I'm going to be making use of this week uh, before it gets any worse in my freezer. So, And I have an ultra-quick tip that I picked up yesterday, and something tells me that probably everybody in the world knows this but me, and I'm the last one to find out. But uh, you know how, like, when you've sanitized a stopper for a carboy and you try and put in, and it keeps just, like, oozing its way back out? What, you mean Slippery uh, City? Yeah, that thing exactly. Well, for years I went with the uh with the manly method of just grabbing some duct tape and taping that sucker in there. Yesterday I saw a guy do something that was so easy and simple and obvious it blew my mind. After he had sanitized the stopper, he wiped it down with some isopropyl alcohol, mm-hmm. which dries very quickly, leaves your stopper still sanitary but dry, and it just goes right in and stays put. I mean, I just, I just love that kind of brilliant, inexpensive uh, stuff like that. Yeah, when I used to use rubber stoppers on my carboys, I, I would use a spritz of vodka. <laughs> yeah, but man, that's alcohol abuse. You're wasting the vodka. No, it's just cheap vodka pop off that nobody in their right mind should ever drink. Okay, if you say so. Uh, so, uh, Drew, tell us about what you've been doing besides brewing lately. All right, well, so in the light of the the fact that no man can live on just beer alone, they also need some protein and some other interesting hobbies, uh, we figured we would offer up an occasional suggestion about other things that we've been enjoying. So today, mine is actually another podcast, so... Chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, you like podcasts, and chances are if you're a home brewer, you're the nerdy sort of person who likes science fiction. So what's been really cool is uh, General Electric, you know, the big massive corporation from days of old, uh, has recently decided to return back to its theater roots uh, with a serial podcast called The Message. And this thing's really cool. It is way creepy, and it's incredibly well done, and It's all about a team of researchers who are attempting to decode a radio message of possibly extraterrestrial origin that was received in the 1940s. Uh, And so what's really great is I think they're on, uh, as we record this, episode six, uh, they've managed to capture both some of kind of that old-timey radio drama uh, thing that was going on, the thing that GE used to sponsor, and really nail the sound of the modern NPR-esque podcast, something like Serial, including the sort of the format where the narrator is actually really part of the story. So I really highly recommend if you like kind of creepy science fiction, like X-Files type stuff, and you miss some of that, and you want to get ready for the X-Files coming back this uh, winter, then you should totally uh, go and download the message and give it a listen. Like I said, right now it's about six episodes, and each of the episodes is somewhere around 10 minutes long, so it's a real quick listen. Oh, 10 minutes, man. I can even work that into my schedule. Although creepy, I don't know, man. Life is creepy enough, but... uh it sounds entertaining. I've got to check that out. So, And one last thing, we want to uh, get into our question of the week here. We want to know what you think. Are automated brewing gadgets like the Brewery or the Pico or the Zymatic really brewing? Uh, let us know what you think about them. Let us know if it's something that you'd be interested in yourself. And you can send your answers to question at experimentalbrew.com. So, uh, Drew, what did we do this week? All right. Well, just to uh, recap, we t- we've told you we need your help with experimentation. Next uh, next time out, we're going to actually uh, cover an experiment for you. So, we need you to be an Igor. 
And if you want to get involved with being an Igor, just uh, email us at igor at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you can find us anywhere, you feel free and tell us. We'll make sure that you get into the program. Uh, we've also learned that Bud Light and Blue Moon are now craft beers and that the term is pretty much meaningless. Denny, uh, Denny hates the term. I wish that there was some other term that we could use to help guide my politics. I don't hate it. I just feel, I just feel like it's useless, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also learned that, hey, automation doesn't suck, but you don't also have to brew with it if you don't want to. Nobody's going to force you to. Uh, and also that uh, the, our local homebrew shops need our support because, hey, it turns out uh, there aren't as many people uh, buying homebrew stuff uh, anymore. So get out there, support your local shop, support your local club, and brew often. <laughs> brew often. I wish I brewed more often. I need to get on that this week. Thanks a bunch, guys, for uh, listening to Experimental Brewing, the podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Experimental Brew, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever else we pop up. Drew lives on Reddit, so you can catch him there. Uh, if you want to ask a question, suggest topics or experiments or rant and rave, you can email us at experimentalbrew.com or you can email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentaldrew.com and believe it or not, did I say experimentaldrew.com? I did. Woohoo! Freudian, Freudian. I am Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, shoot us an email, ask us questions, tell us what you think of the show and what you'd like to see coming up. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to be back in two more weeks with another show. And remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. 